Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is Where We Live. The band Survivor didn't appreciate it much when jailed County Clerk Kim Davis played their signature song at a rally of her supporters. I wonder how they feel about it being the music in the background when Joe Gannam strode to the podium to declare victory in the Bridgeport Democratic primary. Gannam's unlikely political comeback continued last night with a narrow victory over incumbent Mayor Bill Finch. Gannam spent seven years in prison for corruption while holding the office of mayor earlier. If this seems shocking to you, you probably don't follow Bridgeport politics that closely. That's one of the stories we'll talk about on this special Thursday edition of The Wheelhouse. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Elsewhere, two other incumbent mayors lost in somewhat less surprising ways. We'll talk about New London and Hartford, and we'll remember a Hartford political leader who we lost this week. Joining us in studio, as always, is Colin McEnroe, host of The Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. Thanks for coming back on a Thursday, Colin. Bernie Sanders. <laughs> also with us, uh, she was here yesterday, Susan Bigelow, is columnist for ctnewsjunkie.com. Thanks for coming in a second time this week, Susan. I appreciate Absolutely. it. Uh, also joining us, Jeff Cohen, the Capital Region reporter for WNPR, who's been covering Hartford politics very closely for us. Thank you, Jeff. I know it was a long night. Good morning. And joining us is Secretary of State uh, uh, Denise Merrill, who's going to be joining us in just a couple minutes to talk about how much turnout we had, if there are any problems. It's good to see you once again. Thank you. Uh, first of all, let's go to the phones. And our first call-in guest is Luke Bronin, uh, who last night defeated Pedro Segarra in this uh, very close primary election. Luke Bronin, uh, congratulations on your victory last night. Welcome back to where we live. Thanks so much, John. Good to be here. Uh, so were you surprised at the uh, turnout? Were you surprised at the uh, at, at the victory that you had last night and the numbers from uh, last night's result? Well, I was, I was glad to see the turnout. You know, Hartford's been uh, a low turnout city, and uh, we saw numbers that the city of Hartford hasn't seen uh, in about 20 years, I think, last night. And, you know, to me, that, uh, that's, you know, an affirmation of the, the uh, fact that we've been out there trying to reach voters all over the city, door to door, house by house, and make sure everybody understands uh, what's at stake in this election. So it was great to see uh, people come out in, in numbers we haven't seen for a long time. And obviously, uh, you know, we're thrilled with the victory. Hi, Luke. This is Jeff Cohen. I'm, I'm curious. You've, you've spoken a lot about change over the course of the campaign. So let's let's say things stay as they are. Uh, uh, you are the democratically endorsed candidate or uh, primary winner. You become mayor uh, in a few months, hypothetically. What would you change in week one? Well, in week one, it would probably be a lot of changes on the team. You know, I, I, I want to bring in my own team and uh, we're still going to be running hard in this general election. You know, we're, we are not there yet. We've got another phase of this campaign. But I'm going to begin thinking about what uh, that administration would look like. I think one of the most important parts of leadership is getting a good, strong team around you. And, and have you started that transition process yet? Not in any formal way. Uh, Colin McEnroe? Hi, Luke. Uh, you know, looking at the precincts, it's kind of a little bit different, right? So you had more or less a 10-point uh, margin overall last night. But you look at the precincts, and it's much more lopsided. So in Latino precincts, you're losing kind of 70-30 or thereabout. In black and white precincts, you're winning 70-30 thereabout. 
uh, or thereabouts. That kind of makes the argument that you've got some healing to do. I mean, whether it's toward the general election or after after the general election, although, you, I mean, your, your victory is different uh, in Latino districts. So what do you do to make up with those people? Last night you said if you didn't vote for us, the door is open. Is that enough? Uh, well, look, I think after any primary, after any heated primary, there's always some healing. And so, you know, we're, we're going to do everything we can to reach out to everybody. But I've made clear from the start that I think Hartford needs to be one city. It needs to be governed as one city. You know, we're, we're a small city. You know, if we were in New York or, or Los Angeles, we would be one small neighborhood. And so I, I am looking forward to working with all of the neighborhoods in Hartford. Uh, I'm looking forward to doing town halls all over the city. And, you know, I've been knocking on doors all over the city. I'm going to continue to do that uh, for the next six weeks and then, and then beyond. Uh, but, but what I said last night is, is what I mean. Our door, uh, the, the whole team, uh, we are committed to, uh, to working with and for this whole city, and uh, our doors are open. We're talking with Luke Bronin, uh, who won in a primary last night against incumbent Mayor Pedro Segarra, and this is where we live. Susan? Good morning, Luke. Uh, this is Susan from ccnewsjunkie.com. I'm, I'm curious about um, the fact that, that you will be uh, a white mayor if you do go on to win the general election, a white mayor of a city that is primarily non-white. How do you approach that? I approach it the same way I approach the campaign, which is just trying to build those personal relationships. You know, I think what we saw yesterday, uh, you know, despite the, the numbers that the column was just talking about, is I, I think ultimately uh, people in Hartford don't really – care what what you look like or where you're from they want the best leadership for the city they want they care deeply about our city's future and uh, everybody uh, who lives here knows this city has unbelievable potential uh, and is a great city and so i I think uh, voters spoke that what we all need to be focused on is trying to take hartford to the next level i I want to listen to uh, pedro Segarra, the incumbent mayor uh, conceding uh, last night to luke ronan and i have called my opponent to concede uh, his, uh, his success tonight. But I want to tell you that in a very strong and special way, we too have succeeded. And, and that's Pedro Cigar speaking last night, as, as Jeff Cohen put in his story on WNPR.org, sort of talking loudly over the sound of the Republican presidential debate on the screen behind him, uh, which is probably a bit unfortunate. Um, what sort of a conversation did you have with the mayor last night, uh, Luke? And what do you expect to happen heading into November? Because, you know, to Colin's question, to the question that was just asked by, by Susan, if, if you have uh, Pedro Segarra going into November, running uh, with you or against you in a general campaign, that is a very different thing than if Pedro Segarra says, you know what, uh, I've lost. I want to work with uh, the Democratic nominee to to build a stronger Hartford. Those are two very different messages going into November, depending on what happens. Look, I, I think, uh, first of all, in the conversation, you know, it was a very cordial uh, conversation. I think we both have uh, a lot of respect for one another. Uh, I certainly have a lot of respect for Mayor Segarra's service. Uh, he loves the city. I think he played an, an important role in, in stabilizing the city at a difficult time. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, as I said last night, I, I never will and never have questioned his, his commitment to the city. And uh, he'll, he'll have to decide what he wants to do. I think he's entitled to take a little time to figure that out. He, he ran a, a hard-fought campaign and uh, wants to take Take a little while to see what's next, and I respect that. Uh, you know, obviously, I hope that we can all come together as Democrats and uh, move forward into the general uh, election with the United Primary. But for me, uh, regardless of his decision, 
I'm going to be uh, reaching out to Democrats all across the city and to uh, non-Democrats across the city and trying to bring everybody uh, under the tent so that we can all work together. To that point, Luke, uh, I spoke with a lot of people last night and over the course of time, and you've spoken about how you want to make Hartford work for everybody in the city. A lot of African-Americans in the city's north end feel like a lot of the recent progress in the city has left them out. That said, there are only so many pieces of the pie. Uh, why shouldn't someone in who didn't support you, uh, someone in the city's south end where you didn't have as much support, why shouldn't they feel like they're going to get left out of whatever's to come? Because I, I want to be successful as a mayor leading our city forward, and you can't be successful as a mayor, and no city can be successful if people feel left out, if any neighborhood, any group of people feel left out. You know, it, it's critical to Hartford's success that we come together. We really are a small city. And, uh, you know, I'm going to be uh, reaching out all over the city. But, uh, you know, I I, I look forward to those conversations. One of the reasons I got into this race uh, in the beginning and one of the things I've heard as I've been knocking on doors all over the city, in, in every neighborhood, is the sense that, City Hall can be doing more to focus back on, on neighborhoods, and that's not just in the North End. That's, that's all over the city. Uh, Luke Bronin won the Democratic primary last night, 54 percent to 46 percent over incumbent Mayor Pedro Segarra. Thank you very much for calling in. Congratulations on your win last night, Luke. Thanks much. I appreciate it. Uh, this is a special Thursday edition of The Wheelhouse here on Where We Live as we take a look at primary results. Uh, anything surprising uh, to you, Colin, from this result in Hartford last night? No, I think it was largely an unsurprising result. I mean, uh, this sort of 10-point margin seems you know, somewhere within the framework of what everybody was thinking about. Turnout was not particularly surprising, maybe a little softer than, than some people might have guessed. I think I, I guessed 11,000. I heard some other people guessing 11,000. It fell, fell underneath that. Hartford people don't like to vote. You know, they feel about voting pretty much the same way that Chris Christie feels about jogging. So, you know, you just you're always better off going low. So, no, I mean, I wish I could say, oh, well, this is the, I mean, here's the here's the takeaway for me. Uh, assuming that, in fact, Pedro Zagara gets out, which I think is, you know, the, the, the big bet right now, uh, that means that, that Luke Bronin will be the next mayor of Hartford. And I do think a fundamental assumption of American life is going to be tested here in an interesting way. You know, if you think about sort of just all over Connecticut right now, there are parents who are worried about what college their kids are going to get into, what kind of success track they're going to be on. We really believe in America in, in a certain kind of meritocracy, right? You go to the right schools, you learn the material, you memorize the playbook, you get good SAT scores, uh, you, you go to the right graduate schools, you attain the right qualifications, and you're therefore the right people to work on very serious problems. This is what we saw in 1992 when the Clintons took over. There was this sense that George H.W. Bush was the last American president to get the job on the basis of seniority. You know, it was kind of a seniority promotion. The Clintons were these highly trained technocrats. You know, they were going to to do things differently and bring a whole set of skills that we profoundly believe in in America to bear on the problems of the country. And it's also kind of interesting that Luke and Sarah Bronin kind of present a little bit the same way as Bill and Hillary. They're kind of a team of these similarly educated, highly motivated people. Now, Hartford is a problem as a city with deeply ingrained problems. And, and it's possible that these are exactly the right people to turn loose on the set of problems that Hartford has. But it's also possible that they're not, that the problems of Hartford are not amenable to the skill set and the intelligence and the attainments that the Bronins have. And if that turns out to be the case, we're all going to have to question maybe a whole bunch of our assumptions, not just about Hartford, but about how life works. And we'll all have to become nihilists. <laughs> 
<laughs> More so. <laughs> what surprised me about this, uh, not much surprised me really, but it surprised me how clearly things seem to break down along racial and ethnic lines. Uh, I wasn't expecting it to do quite that. I wasn't expecting it to be quite that clear um, that Bronin drew most of his support from white and African-American neighborhoods, and Segarra really did draw most of his support from the South and the South um, and Parkville and places like that where um, where Latinos mostly live. So that, that that's pretty interesting. And it does suggest that there either there's a lot of, um, like the, the sort of attacks that Segarra were make, was making about um, about outsiders coming in and you don't, he doesn't get how how we are and how we live. Maybe some of those seem to resonate with people, or it just could be that his turn get out the vote operation was strongest there. Yeah, Jeff. I saw a guy last night at Bronin headquarters who I hadn't seen in years. He used to work at City Hall, and I'm like, "Hey, how you doing?" He's like, "You know," he leaned over and he said, "Essentially, I've been locked out for four years. I'm back." Was kind of the implication. Mm-hmm. So, it, the one question is it. it is it enough to be smart and well-intentioned? I'm not saying that's all Luke Brunner is. Is it good enough to be smart and well-intentioned uh, and to say the right political things, which he's obviously done enough of and convinced enough people of that he's won the primary. But saying the right things, being smart and being well-intentioned, and then also being a political mayor, understanding how not just to bring all people back under the tent rhetorically but to satisfy people who have been left out or felt they've been left out and not tick off people whose seats they might be taking is not an easy job. Uh, Denise Merrill, I, I want to ask you about turnout in Hartford, but I, I should ask you first, just as you sit here as a political analyst today, is there anything surprising to you about this result? Uh, actually, no. I, I I think it fell pretty much along the lines everyone was sort of quietly talking about. Um, I think the questions you're raising here today are very interesting, though, and I think I'm the only politician in the crowd here today who has actually been elected, and it is a far different cry than being a, a sort of operative. Uh, Luke has been a chief of staff and and other things. Uh, It'll be very interesting to watch because it's a very difficult thing to bring people together. Do do we make, that's interesting you say that because sometimes I feel like we make too much of that. You know, has he run anything? Has he he actually been involved in the political process as a candidate and then as a leader? And you're saying as someone who's done this for a long time, yeah, it's different. I think it is different. Um, And I say that from the perspective also of having been majority leader in the House for a couple of years. Um, You know, bringing people together of very different points of view is an extremely different job than uh, just sort of trying to manage a state agency. I feel almost like I'm on the other side of that now, even though I'm elected, because I'm trying to run a state agency. And that's a it's a different set of skills. And it's a delicate set of skills. I, we were there last night. I remember my arm starts cramping from holding my microphone. And he's like, how many people is this guy going to thank? And he was thanking – literally he was thanking – he's doing the right thing. He was thanking everybody. Then he goes away. And a few minutes later, once everyone starts getting sauced again at the bar – he comes back, and he's like, oh, wait, there's some people I forgot to thank. It's why at the Academy Awards you never give the speech that thanks people because you always forget somebody. Colin, quickly? Yeah, I mean, I, I, first of all, I think Denise is making a great point, which is that uh, not that there aren't elected officials, Dan Malloy, who, who do just sort of tell people to blow it out their old wazoo and, you know, and, and are imperious. But in general, 
it's in general you can't do that. In general, you may go in with a you know it's Mike Tyson famously said everybody has a plan until they get hit until they get hit. Um, and and it's kind of like that when you're uh, elected, particularly to a job like mayor. There's just a lot of people that maybe you never even saw before in your life who are showing up on the steps of city hall on your first day there, and it just there's there's just more pieces in, on the game board maybe than you even ever dreamed. But before we uh, turn to Bridgeport and the fascinating result last night as we look at uh, politics around the region uh, here on the wheelhouse on where we lived in East Merrill. Uh, the turnout in Hartford yesterday uh, is just short of 10,000 people voting. Uh, how Does that feel like good turnout, poor turnout, regular um, turnout for a primary? Well, at the risk of bringing up what I said yesterday, yeah. <laughs> uh, I fell a little, it fell a little short of what I predicted. And I think my I said at the time 30 percent was optimistic. I think it's somewhere around, what, 26 percent. Um, it's a little bit high for a primary, honestly, and that's good. Uh, you know, so but with all the, this was a very heated race and ditto for Bridgeport. Uh, Bridgeport did a little better. I think they're up around 32 percent. Again, I predicted 30 percent down there. So somewhere in, in between, I guess. But in our next segment, we'll talk a little bit more about what we saw at the polls, any problems that we had, even yeah. did we print enough ballots. But we want to come back to that after we talk about the only local race that's perhaps more captivating than Hartford's was the one happening in Bridgeport. Joe Gannon won his party's nomination, defeating incumbent Mayor Bill Finch and businesswoman Mary Jane Foster. Here he is speaking to WTNH last night. It's a new beginning for all of us, really for the people of the city of Bridgeport. I'm so proud to garner the support of people from throughout the city. Brian Lockhart reports on Bridgeport politics for the Connecticut Post. You were there last night, Brian, and it's uh, good to talk to you once again. Welcome back to where we live. So uh, I don't know, uh, you know, meet the old boss, same as the new boss. Here, here he is once again, Joe Gannum, uh, potentially uh, back in the mayor's office. Is this as shocking to you as it perhaps it is uh, to us here in Hartford? I, I think we thought it would be close. I thought Finch would squeak it out and the tables would be turned. You know, and you now have a your, Finch is now in the position where he has to fight on into November. Ganim does have a bit of momentum, um, but this is an odd situation in a primary. You are not going to see a whole bunch of people who were behind Bill Finch suddenly flock into Joe Ganim in the name of party unity. Uh, this is still a very very divided party, a very divided electorate, and it's going to stay that way into November. Um, this is by no means over. Joe Gannon still has quite a lot of work, um, and Finch has some, some advantages. I mean, Gannon still has all the corruption baggage, the seven years in prison. He has all of that baggage, and that's not going away because he won the primary last night. There's a lot of, you know, there, there's some resentment in Hartford and there's some healing that has to be done. Uh, but you could even sort of hear it in Luke's voice, um, Luke Bronin's voice. The, the, I think Hartford is healable. The, the level of anger right now, uh, the level of resentment in Bridgeport, the level of competitive fury in Bridgeport is very high. And, Kion, I think we have a, a tape of Joe Ginnam speaking uh, to Bill Finch last night. This is Joe Ginnam talking to Bill Finch after the votes are counted. I drink your milkshake. <laughs> I drink it up. So you can see. <laughs> you can see it's gotten kind of unpleasant. And so, um, Brian, I, I guess the first thing to say is that, um, well, I, 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 let me make one more observation. I think it's now time 
to remember what it was like in 2003 when this trial was coming to an end. I just I looked up the, the New York Times coverage of it. Paul von Zielbauer wrote uh, that experts say it will be impossible for Joe Gannon to come back to political life ever as a result just because <laughs> of the magnitude of these charges. And and so, you know, we talked about this yesterday, Brian, but it, it, do you think that Bridgeport v- voters have forgotten how – widespread. I mean, this trial, it was like a QVC of graft. They they just kept rolling, you know, cases of wine into the courtroom and showing bespoke Hong Kong tailored shirts. And I mean, it was really kind of an embarrassing trial. And is it just, is it too distant a memory? Is that the reason he's able to do this? I think that's part of it. And I do think that part of it is there are folks in Bridgeport who do not feel as if he did something personally to them. One of the uh, mailers, the Finch folks, sent out, and something the mayor had started to say is they had actually the calculation and boiled down, you know, how much per person in Bridgeport, per, for every man, woman, and child, how much Gannam's curse cost them, and it ended up being like thirteen hundred bucks, fifteen hundred bucks a head. So they were trying to hammer this home. Um, the sense you get is a lot of people felt it, he didn't do anything personal, personally to them. Yes, he lined his own pockets. Yes, he steered contracts. Yes, he got fancy suits and wine and, and all sorts of stuff. But he didn't do anything to me. He kept my taxes down. Uh, you know, he helped build. He helped bring the. Um, you know, he helped build Harvey Yard and bring the bluefish to town. So I, I get that sense. And so these folks. And some of it is some of it is um, amnesia, some of it's nostalgia, but you also have to remember that 30% is good, as Denise pointed out, but it's only it's still only 30% of 40,000 Democratic voters, and there's 15,000 unaffiliated folks in town. Um, the Finch people are really hoping to make an appeal to the unaffiliated. One of the arguments I'm hearing from them is that a lot of these unaffiliated are folks who have been attracted to Bridgeport because of what Bill Finch has done. These are folks who have moved to town over the last eight years that Bill Finch has been in office. And these are folks who will, they believe, reject Joe Gannon's polls in November. Hey, Brian. Uh, I'm kind of wondering if there's a hangover effect going on right now down in Bridgeport. Are, are Democrats and others in the city waking up, you know, their heads throbbing, they roll over in bed and the are like, oh shame. my God, what did we just do? Is And maybe as they get the reaction from elsewhere in the state, I mean, I was hopping on Twitter last night looking at people's reactions. I was searching for Ganem's name and there were just people who were like, I cannot believe, I cannot yeah. believe that we did this. Yeah. Do you think and that one, that's one happening? Of the arguments, another argument the Finch people are putting forward is they believe that there were a lot of folks who would have supported Bill Finch but stayed home because they couldn't fathom that Joe had a chance. Even though everyone was talking about how close the race was, uh, they still think a lot of folks sat home. Um, you know, the, it, it, Finch, Finch still has a lot of fight left in him. This is by no means the end. Is this an embarrassment for him? Yes, it, it is. He's been in office for eight years. He's touted how great his administration has been for the city. And yet to have someone like Joe Gannam come back um, is embarrassing. And, and frankly, the mayor has a much slicker campaign. He has half a million dollars. As the incumbent, he was able to tap into the resources of City Hall. Um, 
And Joe, I mean, we were joking, we were saying last night that there were times where Joe Gannam's campaign, it seemed like it was run on a shoestring. I mean, he was his own communications team. You know, the mayor has a very slick communications team, both in his campaign and out of City Hall. And yet, and Joe Gannam would pop out these press releases with typos and, and all sorts of all sorts of stuff. And it just, it seems incomprehensible um, that he was able to pull this off. Uh Brian, I, I have one. I do, what, think a, I do think there's a hangover, but I think people are still very hopeful that there is still a good chance of turning this thing around between now and November. So, Brian, I have one question. I mean, obviously, there's a clear path for Bill Finch right now. The thing uh-huh. that he's got to do is get Mary Jane Foster out of the race. I think prior to the the primary, you could have made the argument that if Foster got out, maybe Gannum and, and Finch would be splitting up those votes, if not evenly, maybe 60-40 or something like that. I mean, uh-huh. some of those Foster people are, are Foster people because they don't like Finch. Uh-huh. Uh, and one of those people is Foster. Um, but now it does seem to me, sort of per what Susan just said, that if Bridgeport's having kind of this hangover, this walk of shame moment, one of the ways that they can right the ship a little bit and, and make sure that they don't have this mayor that people are afraid to deal with is, is to get Mary Jane Foster out of the race and have her endorse Finch. Now, we know they don't like each other very much. How, but I, I can't imagine that Finch is thinking about anything else this morning. So how does he get Mary Jane Foster's votes? Uh, what's your take on this? Well, I did. I did speak to her this morning um, because she made some comments, you know, in the heat of last night, basically saying she will not be supporting Joe Gannam or Bill Finch. Um, got her early this morning. She reiterated that. She said she is not going away, but she will not be supporting Joe Gannam or Bill Finch. Uh, she's going to think on what her next move is. Uh, there will certainly be um, there will certainly be outreach. I think there will be a lot of. But to on her, uh, one of the things that will be interesting is the role Governor Malloy plays in all this because he endorsed Bill Finch after um, Mayor Finch won the won the uh, town committee convention. So it'll be interesting to see how Malloy plays this. But Malloy and Foster are friendly. She has worked for Malloy um, here, you know, to get him reelected and to get him elected. So it, there's going to be a lot of pressure put on her. But she was adamant that she will not be back in Ganem. She will not be back in. Finch. For her, uh, for her, there's not much of a difference between these two guys. You know, they're, you know the Finch folks will, will say he is honest, he is ethical, he is transparent, but she just does not see him that way. She, doesn't, she obviously doesn't accuse him of the same things, same crimes that Gannon was convicted of. But Foster is adamant that they are not that different. They're two career politicians. Um, mm. I think – now, the Finch – I have heard some of the Finch people say, listen, we don't necessarily need her. We think what's going to happen is a lot of her supporters will see the writing on the wall, and they are going to come over to Bill Finch. They're not going to vote for Joe Gannon. So do we really need Mary Jane? But I have spoken to people who say, yeah, it would be great if she came forward. It would be great if she stepped forward. But I don't – I honestly don't know what it's going to take – to do that, and she has drawn such deep lines in the sand on this um, that for her to turn around and publicly back Finch, it's going to a lot. We, we really going to take a lot. We started our segment with Eye of the Tiger. Maybe we can go out with Mary Jane's last dance. No, Brian- we should go out with bad blood. <laughs> now we got bad blood. Brian Lockhart <laughs> reports on Bridgeport politics for the Connecticut Post. Thanks so much, Brian. Have have a lot of fun today. 
folks. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more with Denise Merrill, the Secretary of the State, about how it went yesterday uh, in polling places across the state as we wrap up primary results on a special Thursday edition of The Wheelhouse here on Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. I want to let you know that coming up tonight at 7 o'clock during the normal rebroadcast of this program, we're going to bring you coverage from NPR about the Iran nuclear deal. The special examines how the agreement came to be, the heated debate in Washington, and how it could play out in the Middle East. That's tonight at 7 on WNPR. Today, it's a special Thursday edition of The Wheelhouse, looking at what happened on primary day across Connecticut with Colin McEnroe, with Susan Bigelow from ctnewsjunkie.com, our own Jeff Cohen, and Denise Merrill, Connecticut's Secretary of the State. We talked a bit about turnout in uh, Hartford. How was turnout in Bridgeport? How was turnout across the state yesterday, Denise? Well, in Bridgeport, it it broke 30 percent. And sadly, that's kind of a victory. I mean, and it's really (laughs) interesting that we're all talking about it like this is this huge turnout. And that's just 30 percent of the that's only 30 percent of the registered voters, much less who else is eligible. But uh, that aside, aside from the cities and potentially New London, I haven't really looked at their turnout where there was also kind of a hot race. Um, Turnout was abysmal, as it usually is in municipal races, sometimes not even breaking uh, 10%. And we'll be talking about the New London results in just a couple of minutes with uh, Dave Collins from the day of New London. Um, and everything worked okay? I mean, you said one small victory is, you know, 30% is pretty good, you know, in Hartford, Bridgeport, not so bad. Things, you know, polling places are open. There's another small victory, right? Oh, yeah. I, actually, it's kind of a big victory from my point of view because we made a lot of changes, a lot of election reforms, and I think some of them are starting to work. Um, you know, of course, there was an election monitor in Hartford. I think not only that was did that be sort of a sword over their heads, but also I think it was helpful, you know, because it pointed out some of the things that they had to do, had to do correctly. And, you know, I think it ended up being a positive thing. Um, And in Bridgeport, you know, we got we actually got the results in writing last night at 3 a.m. That's that's a real victory. Those of you who remember that a lot of times, even though they're supposed to get us the results within 24 hours or 48 hours, you know, sometimes it's weeks. Hallelujah. That's that, that sounds like pretty good stuff, Colin. Yeah. And I mean, uh, it's we got one voting machine in Hartford did have to be opened with an ice pick. Um, however, I mean, you know, machines are machines and they don't always work. Exactly but they've got right. ice and, picks at the polling places. Well, we're good. very lucky to have That's Gary Coleman around. Gary Coleman, one of the most resourceful uh, public officials, he is able to be deputy registrar of voters of Hartford, which I believe is a full time job and clerk of the Senate, which I believe is also a full time job. So this man. <laughs> is able to spread himself around, and he was able to go get an ice pick and open the machine up. That's that's super helpful. Jeff, in the middle of the day in Hartford, you were reporting that turnout was uh, getting a, a little bit bigger than people thought. They actually had to print new ballots? That's right. We spoke with the Secretary of the State's office, and, and they had printed enough ballots that would have, uh, by just aggregate numbers, it would have worked. But some districts were higher than others. Right. Maybe some districts were going to w- run out, or rather— uh, let's. I think, and you could explain, Madam Secretary. But the idea was let's make sure that some districts don't run out. What yes. you know, so that that they ended up printing some more ballots. Uh, is that roughly? Yes. And the the real lesson here is now everyone has, according to our new legislation, an emergency plan in place, which means they know how to do that. See, what it, it's always been the law <laughs> that you can print some more ballots. But why is it's that just, funny? <laughs> Yeah, I'm just picturing Olga Vasquez's like bag of like drinking water and flashlights as she like flees. You know. 
this in case of emergency. A couple of bungee well, ice pick. You know, we're <laughs> laughing, but, you know, there were several polling places where someone didn't have the key to get in the building. Now, you know, it's things like that that Look, throw things into chaos. We talk about this every four years or maybe every two years, maybe every year, uh, Secretary. And this is... Part of the thing about our system, and I know we said this yesterday, you've been lobbying to change the the way the system works. But, I mean, if there's anything that can go into the hashtag, you had just one job. It's running municipal elections like this. I mean, you work for this all year long, and yet we have story after story about your office having to put together an emergency plan about what to do if there's not enough ballots. Print more ballots. Just get the job done. Why is it so hard to have reasonable elections Every single time we need to have them in the state of Connecticut. I think we're going to do better from now on because we do have emergency plans. So everybody knew who to call when they couldn't get in the building, didn't have the key to the janitor's closet or whatever they needed. Believe it or not, that was the problem in Bridgeport five years ago, whatever it is. They couldn't get into the closet that had the copy machine so they could make more ballots. I mean, it's stupid things like that (laughs) that throw elections into chaos. Susan Bigelow, is my indignation, uh, you know, justified or not? I mean, it seems to be one of these issues that comes up all the time. But it's really important, especially in elections like these, where we're talking about 400 votes separate two candidates who spent a lot of money trying to run for a very important office. Right. And it's not like they don't know that this is going to happen because it seems to happen all the time. Oh, they don't have enough ballots. Oh, there's a problem getting in. Um, maybe you could speak to this, Madam Secretary. Is there is there a way um, now that now that registrars are going to have to be certified? Is that going to change? I mean, are they going to get lessons on right? <laughs> are they going to get lessons on how to open up the the voting machine, or what's going to happen? Well, actually, uh, they will get a lot more instruction on technology, which is going to fix some of the problems. They're going to get a, a lesson on how to put together an emergency plan and get the phone or the cell phone of the janitor. I mean. These seem like simple things, but it, you, you aggregate them, and they are something that we have to have 339 people know how to do in every little town in the state. And it's, it's just – it's a big systems issue. I think it's getting better. I think this election was a good sign that things are on the uptick. Look, I, I wanted to ask you about this yesterday. We just have a moment with you left. But there's a new report from the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU. It finds that 43 states will be using voting machines that are more than 10 years old very soon, maybe I- including right here in Connecticut. Uh, after the 2000 election, a bunch of federal laws went into place. We needed to replace the, the ways in which we vote, the physical machines that we vote on. We had these old clunky machines for years and years and years. And they yeah, were they, great, by the way. They broke sometimes, Colin, but they were great, right? They, they did what they were supposed to do. Oh, Maybe you not had to, always. Not always. <laughs> okay, but now we're into a different era. And as we all know, digital and electronic technology has to cycle through and break and then be replaced. Where are we with the technology that we vote on here in Connecticut? Is it about time to get some new machines? How are we looking at this? I'm afraid so. Believe it or not, everybody still talks about the new machines. They're 10 years old. Uh, They're 10 years old. (laughs) And so they are starting to break, that we have extras around. But there is a lot of new technology, and I think it's going to look a lot more like how you scan into airports, for example, and getting tickets. I mean, there's a lot of new ways of doing this that are a lot better, and we'll have more accurate lists. We won't have all these continuous fights about IDs and all that sort of thing. So, yeah, we're going to be in the market pretty soon. We're in the market, but this is a big, I think it's a big political question, Colin. I mean, some of this technology comes with real serious considerations about how we vote, what ID we bring, how the whole process works. Right. And I mean, unfortunately, sort of from 2000 forward, all of this has been tinctured with a general nationwide sense of distrust, right? There's 
a, a sense, a lot of it centered around the state of Ohio, that he who controls the voting machines mm-hmm. controls outcomes. There, there's, I mean, you don't hear that so much in places like Connecticut, but it's sort of there, this kind of sense that it's not just does the technology work, but is it gameable? Uh, and uh, we, you know, uh, that, that's always anyway part of the conversation. And it's it's unfortunate. I mean, it's it's a part of America that I think is relative, relatively new to the in the 21st century that, um, you know, I mean, it just sort of undermines confidence. Well, and it's not so much here in Connecticut, but it, it is true. What are we just talking about? We have uh, elected people who are registrars who are part of one party or another who are in charge of deciding whether or not to print out paper ballots and either send them places or make sure there's enough at the polling place. I mean, this seems like a very 18th century technology here. Still, even though we're scanning them through an optical scan machine, uh, Secretary Merrill, uh, this is one of the problems. A very small number of people have a chokehold on the entire system. Which is why it's important that we have some training process at the state level. But I would say Connecticut has been very cautious when it comes to things like all the pressure on us to do online voting, for example. I am still completely opposed to that because I don't think it's secure. But we bought these scan machines, which is actually kind of an old technology, really. A lot of states went to these touch machines like you have for ATMs, and they are changing them in back to the scanning machines because we do have the paper trail. You know, it's just a scanner, basically, and it's much harder to monkey with. But we do uh, test them. We have the Yukon Election Center uh, over at the engineering school, one of three in the country that routinely checks all our technology. And so we happen to be one of the more cautious states when it comes to this sort of thing. And Denise Merrill is the secretary of the state of Connecticut. Yeah, the new machines are 10 years old. I can't believe it. It's time time to do it once again. Uh, thank you so much for coming in, Madam Secretary. My pleasure. Uh, we'll continue taking a look at the new London results from yesterday. And we'll also remember a Hartford political leader who died this week. That's coming up next where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up tomorrow, some fascinating history, including the history of law in the New Haven colony in the 1600s. A new book takes a look at uh, important questions like, who was the piglet's father and who's responsible for the faulty shoes? Law and the New uh, Haven uh, colonies coming up on tomorrow's show. Today, we were taking a look at what happened in yesterday's primary results across the state. Colin McEnroe from WNPR's Colin McEnroe Show is here, along with uh, Susan Bigelow from ctnewsjunkie.com and our own Jeff Cohen. Uh, Joining us now is David Collins, columnist for The Day in New London. Uh, And David, welcome uh, back to the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, good morning, John. How are you this morning? I, I'm doing quite well. So wh- the theme of today's program has been incumbents losing, and you had another incumbent lose in New London. What happened in New London yesterday, David? Yeah, he lost pretty big. Um, you know, I think it was part of the trend. Um, uh, certainly running uh, Connecticut City uh, these days is not easy. Um, New London is particularly difficult. It's a small city. Uh, doesn't have a big uh, tax base. Um, so I think all the incumbents fell a little into the, uh, over that cliff, but um, this one uh, he had some other problems too. Uh, it was uh, his first term; uh, he was due to the city and to city government, and didn't make a lot of good alliances. Um, made a lot of people angry over a couple of years, and um, um, didn't do very well yesterday. And, and this is uh, Mayor uh, Daryl Justin Finizio. So, who is Michael Passero? Who who beat him yesterday? Uh, Michael Passero is someone that um, uh, Mayor Finizio has called a label part of the old guard. Although he hasn't been in politics a long time, he's a city firefighter. 
he's also a, a, a lawyer. He practices on the side, labor law, um, a member of the city firefighting union. The firefighters were on force for him yesterday. Um, he was previously the council president. He's now on the city council and um, um, ran a good campaign. He really um, um, brought in a broad coalition of um, city residents. Uh, the mayor calls them old guard, but downtown businesses, um, people who were um, not happy with the mayor and were happy to coalesce around an opposition candidate. And uh, he did a good He ran a good campaign. Uh, Susan Bigelow, are you surprised in this result at all? It seems that it has some of the same flavor as the other results we're talking about. People unhappy with high taxes, people unhappy with the way the city's being run. Susan, in New London, sounds like the voters are saying the same thing. Yeah, possibly. I mean, of course, every every race is going to be different, especially when we're talking about municipal city elections. Everything turns on different things. Uh, but my question is... Uh, he talked about being a part of the new guard versus the old guard. Was he, he the only part of the new guard? Was he was he sort of a new guard of one? He seemed like he had a lot of problem uh, making friends. Yes, he did. And and you know after you when, and that's the interesting thing about all the incumbents losing yesterday. You know when you when you've got the levers in your hands for three or four years, you usually make friends. Um, and in this case, he made a lot of enemies. And partly it was taxes and the downtown business. Even he said that in the end, the downtown business owners tend to despise him. Um, he was kind of, um, and he, he he went in as a as a moderate Democrat. Um, he he got more progressive. Um, I think that's the term went on. His one of his first things to do was to uh, announce that he was going to have the police no longer make marijuana arrests, um, and the prosecutors said you can't do that. <laughs> um, and he just became more and more progressive. He uh, endorsed Bernie Sanders. Um, I, I think um, maybe a little too progressive for the city, and. Um, um, uh, he also he forged really strong alliances with unions, not the city, the, the municipal unions, the firefighters and the police both endorsed Castro, but um, he supported the nurses during the kind of bitter strike at L&M Hospital. Um, yeah. And so the AFT union was very, very much in his corner. They were very much out on the streets yesterday um, and through the campaign. And so it was kind of a big loss for them. The other person who lost yesterday was the um, uh, petitioning um uh, candidate for the Democratic ballot for city council, who is also the lobbyist for AFC. Uh, he lost uh, amongst the, he's the only one who didn't make it onto the Democratic um, mm. ballot for the city council. So it was kind of not a good day for the AFC in New London either. Uh, Dave Collins is columnist for the day in New London. We'll be checking back in with you, David, of course, as we head toward the general election there in New London. But thanks so much for updating us today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Have a good day. Uh, uh, you, you too. And uh, Susan Bigelow, I know we were talking yesterday about some other races around the state. The one that you wanted to bring up, the little town of Ellington. And, and here's another case of the same thing happening, right? That's right. Uh, the first electman, uh, Republican Maurice Blanchett, he lost his party's endorsement um, during the in the convention. And, of course, he ran a primary. Uh, and he lost the primary yesterday. He lost to Lori Spielman, I believe her name is. Um, and... I don't know. I mean, again, this is another one of these cases where things are happening because of what's going on on the ground in, in the town. It's not necessarily because of any larger trend. But again, it's just an interesting case to bring up that here's another example of an incumbent losing. And speaking of incumbents, uh, Jeff, we, we haven't gotten a chance to really say what is next for Pedro Cigar in Hartford after he loses. What do you see happening with the mayor? Uh, he does, hasn't yet said he has secured himself a place on the November ballot should he want it. He said he, last night he's going to decide whether or not he does. He would need to raise a lot of money. And and I was telling you off air, John, there's a, I, was, I was watching him yesterday at Burns Elementary School School and he, he wasn't exactly campaigning 
yeah, and as you would, he was doing what his tra- training seems to be as a social worker. He was helping a lady find a ride home, like very actively working the phones to get this lady a ride back to Dutch Point. Uh, and he was mediating a dispute. One of his poll standards had gotten into a screaming match over a parking spot with a security officer, and he was there mediating it. So <laughs> uh, one wonders uh, whether, what, even though he said his gut is still in it, whether or not uh, it really is. Uh, I, I want to turn uh, before we end our show today to, um, well, an obituary, Colin, and, and you wrote a very nice remembrance of Nick Carbone yesterday. It, whenever we have a week in which we talk an awful lot about politics, as we have this week, it is uh, unfortunate timing, I suppose, to have someone who's so prominent in our political world uh, pass away at the same time. In just a moment, we're going to bring in uh, our friend Bill Curry to talk about this. Could could you remind people, for people who don't know who Nick Carbone was, who he was? Well, for 10 years, especially from 1971 to 79, those eight years, he was indisputably the person running Hartford. He was uh, he never held the position of mayor. The position of mayor was not a terribly powerful position at that time. It was a different system. I think the only hire the mayor could make was his own secretary. So uh, Nick Carbone, from a position on the council, uh, sometimes known as deputy mayor, and also as the Democratic town chairman of Hartford, fused those two things and, and became an extraordinarily powerful person. It is interesting that he died within a few hours uh, of a, a Hartford primary. Primaries were kind of uh, fateful for Nick Carbone. In 1974, he engineered an impossible victory uh, for Ella Grasso in Hartford over Bob Killian Sr. Bob Killian Sr. was um, uh, was a Hartford guy, uh, so he wasn't supposed to lose a gubernatorial primary in his own city. And Nick Carbone made that happen. But in 79, Nick Carbone, who was basically tired of making a little bit more than $4,000 a year, I think, as a city councilman, decided he would run for mayor, even though it was kind of a nothing position. That position paid $30,000. And he ran against George Athenson, the longtime mayor, and he lost. So primaries were a big thing for Nick Carbone one way or another. But as Bill is going to tell you more about, I think, the thing that gets lost about Carbone, I mean, a lot of people just remember him as this incredibly powerful guy, this power broker, and a guy who uh, was also extraordinarily good going into the boardrooms, especially with Donald Conrad, the head of the Aetna. But in general, he was very comfortable with the so-called bishops, uh, the, the informal council of, of business leaders who, who really had a lot to say about Hartford. He did a tremendous amount for Hartford, and he was kind of a dreamy visionary in addition to being uh, this incredibly skilled politician. So he, he was the kind of person that, you, I don't know, the likes of which we probably may, will not see in Hartford for a long time to come. And we have on the line Bill Curry, who's a columnist for Salon.com, our Democratic political analyst. We have just a few minutes, Bill, but I'd love for you to to tell uh, our listeners why Nick Carbone was so important to you. Well, first of all, like like hundreds of other people who, who knew him at close range, uh, I loved Nick. And uh, Nick was a deeply loving person. Um, uh, the, the, the number of people... You know, when you get to know people through politics, um, uh, uh, there are friendships and there are political friendships, and the latter just aren't as close, and uh, and and they uh, tend to be transactional. Uh, I can tell you the number of political people who were moved and, and saddened by the news of Nick's death is is a long one, um, and and there was uh, Colin used the word dreamy. There was this very soft, gentle side to a guy whom the current in those days always referred to as Hartford political strongman. And I think that that <laughs> old Republican uh, editorial board at that time and somewhat conventional would have had a hard time understanding what drove him. Uh, it, it, he was a guy who came up out of the streets who was never driven by patronage. There were never any of those kinds of scandals 
uh, ever ever touched him in any way. It wasn't what he cared about. Uh, he had a great falling out with Elagrasso after he engineered the primary victory that, that Colin cited, and they fell out over policy. I mean, Ella thought Nick was a little too meddling, and boy, Nick would press his case till you you know till he wanted to scream. Uh, uh, but he was disappointed in her lack of uh, appreciation for the issues that drove him or at his heart. Uh, and a, a guy who, for a guy in that position, to put issues first, as he always did, he was the, the most issue-driven politician uh, I think that I've ever met. Uh, and so that was extraordinary. And yet also that he had, when you think about the things you don't usually get together, I just in, in, in one guy, uh, that sense of an overarching vision that comes first, at the same time, a complete mastery of detail. He had an encyclopedic knowledge not just of city government, but of the federal government. There wasn't a single program he didn't understand, uh, you know, right down to the last uh, uh, semi-comma in, 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 in Colon, uh, if it affected uh, cities. Uh, he was able to move in the corporate community uh, 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 and, and in every community. He had deep friendships in the African-American community. In, in, in cities, city politics, there's generally sort of, in, in, among mayors especially, there's generally sort of two types the downtown development type and, and the neighborhood empowerment type. Uh, nobody I've ever even heard of was as deeply committed to both. And, uh, and you saw it in Hartford uh, and, uh, in his commitment to the neighborhoods and in the amazing job he did uh, with the downtown. Uh, everyone, yeah. everyone who was around then remembers it as a golden time in the history of the city at a time of great hope. Uh, his dying as this transition occurs is there's really actually a kind of timeliness to it. If uh, if somehow uh, that that kind of thing that can happen, the one thing I know that, that uh, Luke Bronin can do is try to bring in some of the kinds of talent that Nick was a magnet for from all over the country uh, that helped make a difference here. He cast he he was certainly the greatest political leader Harper produced in fifty the last fifty to seventy five years and possibly the greatest mm. ever. Bill Curry is a columnist for Salon.com, our Democratic political analyst. Thank you so much, Bill, for joining us. I really appreciate it. Oh, my, my pleasure. Thanks, John. And if you want to read uh, Colin McEnroe's lovely Remembrance of Nick Carbone, you can go to WNPR.org. Thank you, Colin, very much. I appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Thanks also to Susan Bigelow from ctnewsjunkie.com. Thank you, Susan. Thank you. And thanks to our own Jeff Cohen. Thanks so much for all your coverage, Jeff. You're welcome. You can find out more about what happened yesterday in our primary results at WNPR.org. You can find out more about our show. Just go to slash where we live. I'm John Dankowski. This is where we live.